Hey listeners, thank you for coming back for Ladywood episode 2. Just a quick warning that if you hear a couple seconds of static a few times as you're listening today, don't worry about your headphones or speakers. We're pretty sure it's just the ghost of the real Al Swearingen trying to defend himself, but he doesn't stick around. Enjoy the episode. everyone, welcome to episode two of Ladywood. Uh, my name is Sita Sean. I am a, a comedy writer and a stand-up comedian. I'm Lynn Sternberger. I'm a television writer out of Los Angeles. And I'm Brandi Sperry, also a writer in Los Angeles and co-host of the Downton Gabby podcast. So today we're going to be talking about the second episode written by Malcolm McRory and directed by Davis Guggenheim. Those are great museum names. Right? <laughs> I want to talk about something before we get into the actual episode content, which is, we didn't talk about this on the first episode, but the TV landscape of 2004 when Deadwood premiered is so different from what we have now. It was really like the last vestiges of like the must-see TV era, you know, the last season of Friends. The West Wing ER, Everybody Loves Raymond, are still on the air. And The Apprentice is the number five show in America. It Ugh. was it was like the rise of reality television mm-hmm. kind of yeah. plague, I want to call it. <laughs> A plague. That's fine. It's, <laughs> it's right at the beginning of it because this is, what, three years before the writer's strike in 2000... Right. 2008. 2008, yeah. So, I mean, the reality program has been ramping up but really didn't, like flourish until, until all the writers stopped working and there was nothing but survivor. Good point, nine. but I'm looking at this. American Idol and the results show were number two and number three in the US. Apprentice was five. I mean, it was happening. It yeah. Was, it was happening. It was already. happening. Survivor yeah. had been on the air for a while. I mean I think what's interesting to me is just that is just remembering that HBO was really kind of showing off at this point still of what they could get away with and what a huge contrast it was. So that's that's where we are, and there hadn't been a hit Western on American television since Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. That's crazy. Which, no slight on Dr. Quinn. I definitely watched that episode. <laughs> I love Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. My mom and I were totally about Sully. We were team <laughs> Sully all the way. <laughs> I was just in my head being like, do I mention Sully, or do I, like, does that go too far in revealing? <laughs> I mean, what, oh, like, Friday nights were, like, growing up. Like, what a fine white man in an Indian outfit, right? <laughs> wow. Mm. We should mention, Sita is a person of color, so she can say stuff like that. <laughs> I'm the only one allowed. <laughs> and I'm allowed to joke about Jews. And Brandy, what are you allowed to joke about? Oh, nothing. <laughs> oh, Brandy. <laughs> Okay, let's get into this episode, which uh, I think is a really great example of an episode two. Like, it just picks up literally, like, the next morning from what happened in the pilot episode. All of the threads continue and really ramp up, and the relationships deepen, tensions rise. It really feels like it delivers on the promise of the pilot, and you feel like you're in capable hands. I still feel like the pace is just so fast. Yeah. Not in the scenes. The scenes don't feel rushed. It's just when I think about all that's being accomplished, as far as characterization and big moves with alliances and, you know, life and death stakes, it's just 
so much is packed into this episode. It's equivalent, in my mind, to the pilot, mm-hmm. as far as, like, deep getting to know the characters, getting to know them a little bit deeper. Um, it's just wild. So, this episode was called Deep Water, and I once again uh, stole this little uh, description off of the internet. As suspicions arise that road agents may have been the true perpetrators of the massacre, as opposed to Sioux scouts, Swearingen takes a special interest in the health of its sole survivor, a young girl ministered to by the unlikely team of Doc Cochran and Calamity Jane. Brom Garrett suspects his newly acquired gold claim may not be all it was advertised. That's a terrible sentence. That's, I don't even think it's grammatically correct. Maybe I need to review the internet better. <laughs> Fact check the internet. Oh, meanwhile, Brahm's over here doing something. Yeah. No attention to anything else going on in the camp. Brahm is like, I think I smell a fish. <laughs> this guy. That could be his, um, his like, catchphrase. Brahm Garrett. This guy. <laughs> right. This fucking guy. So let's talk about Al and how he can sort of feel the danger of his power and how it could slip with all these new people coming into camp and with the, I mean, his real fear about this whole thing is he doesn't want white people to turn on white people if they find out that the people who killed this family were also white. I mean, that is like, there's just so much going on there. Wow, I didn't even think about it in that sense. I didn't think it was like, I want to keep the peace of my neighborhood. I thought he didn't want to be exposed. He definitely, he doesn't want to be exposed, but he definitely says at some point, like, we really want people, like, we really want whites turning on whites. Which is just like, I mean, they are already shooting each other in the streets, so I don't know how much worse he could get, but I I I did notice that we keep the body count usually at one per episode. One per Mm. episode. I think, yeah, I mean, I think he does definitely want to keep people thinking that there's a common outside enemy, whether that be the Sioux, or whether that be the U.S. government, mm-hmm. he is very concerned with all infighting in the camp being basically controllable by him. Yeah, he's definitely the puppet master, and I think he wants people to not know that he's the puppet master, but, like, everybody knows this guy's the puppet master, yeah, right? I don't, I don't think anyone doubts that Al's sort of behind everything. I think there's always the implication that there's, like, something going down that Al probably had something to do with it which comes up in episode three but that's that's one of the things episode three is when he's surprised by something happening in town because he literally knows everything totally what really uh, stood out to me at the opening of episode two was the way that we were seeing sort of a day in the life for both Al and Doc Cochran Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was intercut it wasn't like specifically paralleling but ultimately when when I thought back on it I was like oh with Al we see him checking on his whores, we see him checking on his uh, various cover-ups and uh, manipulations of the different guys that work for him, and Doc, uh, we saw him uh, giving the prostitutes pussy cream and going to Alma Garrett and discussing her need for a doctor versus her addiction, um, and also, oh, he's caring for the little girl, mm-hmm. obviously. They're both kind of dealing with all of the refuse of the first episode. Does the doc ever get to do anything else but deal with refuse? This poor guy. No, I feel really badly. And also, like, doc definitely seems like he's reached his his wit's end with sort of everything's going on. Uh, not just with Alma, but especially with um, the fact that he's cleaning up dead bodies. Alma's taking up his time when she shouldn't be. Then he's getting called over to the prostitutes 
And then he's having to defend this young girl in his care who is, he thinks, deaf, dumb, mute, because of this tragedy. Hope. Hope Hope. that she is. But no, he definitely seemed like he was going to have an aneurysm. Along with the doc caring for the little girl is Jane still, who seems to have an odd gift for caring for people in strange situations. What I really liked about this episode, speaking of the pace of characterization, is how much we learn about Jane and Jane's past just through the conflict with Al. I mean, she, first of all, uh, through interactions with the doctor, is flattered and surprised by her own ability to really care for the little squarehead girl, which I'm guessing squarehead is Western for, like, Germanic or Swedish yeah, Norwegian, or the, Norwegian. Like <laughs> I was like this is a brand new ethnic slur that yeah. I've just learned so when Al comes into the doctor's um, home or office or whatever that thing is and he threatens that um, that moment really surprised me because up until that point Jane has been very steadfast about her protection of the weaker. She has been defiant in the face of authority, in the face of pretty much every other male character. But then when Al comes in, it's like, oh, I think this is supposed to show like the true power of Al and mm-hmm. how he operates and how, why he has the effect he has on people. And seeing Jane sort of like blubber and, and, and sort of crumble in his face was really surprising to me. Why do we think Al went to check on the girl himself instead of sending somebody? I think on occasion he just gets sick of his henchmen, maybe. He's just like, these guys don't get it done fast enough or efficient enough. I'm going to go get to the bottom of this. I can't trust them to analyze the situation correctly. Maybe. Because it definitely was an intimidating moment when he mm-hmm. when he strolls in there. I mean, I, I kind of remembered what happened, but if I had been seeing it for the first time, I'd be like, oh, he's going to kill her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I thought he was going to kill her, too. Yeah. So, but no, he just pinches her really hard, which apparently gets people out of fake comas. I didn't know that. <laughs> I think the thing with Jane, you're right, Sita, it's really descriptive of who she might have been before she was out on the mm-hmm. road with Bill Hickok. And then at the end of the episode, you get this moment where she just says, I haven't been scared like that since I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like brings it all together. It's just like, I don't really need to know more to know that she obviously grew up in an abusive household and was like fully triggered by this intimidating man coming through the door. And it also really colors the fact that she has such devotion to a good and caring man mm-hmm. like Bill Hickok. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and then also the the language pretty much implies that she was raped when she was uh, from an early age, younger even than the girl that she's protecting, which is horrifying. Yeah. I don't know if I read, I don't know if I caught that. Well, she says, you can do it to me. She says that to Al Swearingen. Mm-hmm. And so when he walks out, he's like, why would I do it to you? I have a house full of whores. I don't need oh. you. And then when she says to the doctor, she says, I broke down. It happened to me when it, all the time, even when I was younger than this girl. Oh. So that confession was like, oh, my God. And you, like, picked up on something I've never picked up on yeah. because I thought she was talking about killing her to spare the girl. That's how I've always interpreted that. Yeah, thing. but I I agree. It definitely could be read the way that you're reading it. Yeah. And, and maybe that is indeed her backstory. And I don't think we ever get anything that says that's not her backstory. Yeah. So, um, I mean, certainly, I, that wouldn't be that surprising, right? No, not at women, all. Women are used like this kind mm-hmm. of consistently in, this, in the world of Deadwood. 
Um, so on a lighter note, I just wanted to say that um, I thought that the the friendships in this episode definitely hooked me. Um, Seth and Bill have this little bromance brewing. I mean, Seth and Saul are like my OTP, but um, <laughs> Seth, and, Seth and Bill is really interesting. Um, Seth, again, Bill asks him to have his back when they're in the saloon, the gambling mm-hmm. parlor. He, in fact, kind of ups the stakes of their relationship by flat out lying to cover mm-hmm. Bill, um, who draws his gun when the other man, who did have, I think they call it ill intents, or yeah. he was a revenge seeker. He was, but he hadn't drawn his gun yet, and he Seth says he saw him going for yeah. it when he didn't. Which is the first time I feel like we've actually seen Seth like flat out lie in a in a sort of like legal. I don't know if legal is the phrase, but in a sort of like these are the facts and this is what the law says. We mm-hmm. we have the right to do well, like, at least what custom says. He's mm-hmm. yeah, he's manipulating the situation to protect Bill, who is an upright gentleman in his eyes. We don't know all that much about Bill. I feel like that's the one thing we're missing is, like, he has a reputation. We know he has a reputation, but we're not being told exactly what the reputation is. Yeah. Bill feels like a like a Kim Kardashian in this town. <laughs> that's, like, yes. with, with his best friend, like, brokering that relationship with Seth was so interesting to me. Like, oh, I just think you're a really good influence on Bill. I want you to hang out with him. That, like, sort of, Ooh. it was almost like a teen rom-com kind of thing yeah. where you tell your best friend that you like someone. So then your best friend tells that someone, hey, that other person kind of likes you. So I really enjoyed that dynamic. And then uh, Hickok's fame is kind of currency in this town. Yeah. Which is why I'm calling him the Kardashian of this town. I was, I was <laughs> trying to think, like, is he more a Kim K or is he a Kanye? Because he definitely makes some missteps, but I, I feel like n- none of those are as bad as, like, the stuff that Kanye is pulling right now. Yeah, so, yeah. okay, let's, let's stick with Kim K. I'm with you. <laughs> Um, but, like, their relationship, and then Jane and Charlie, who were really at odds in the first episode, there's, like, a thawing here, mm-hmm. even if it's temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they both team up to sort of protect this girl. And, like you were saying, when Jane ultimately breaks down, it's in Charlie's arms. Mm-hmm. He comforts her. And then together, while Jane is, like, admittedly shit-faced, mm-hmm. um, they triangulate the yeah. corner to protect uh, the little girl. And completely missed the threat. Yeah, completely missed the threat. <laughs> Watch Dan go walking by. <laughs> Where's it going? It seems like an oversight. Uh, I mean, Jane is nearsighted as well. I think that right. was also brought up. So, Jane is both drunk and blind. You all the things, Sita. completely changing my impression of Plan B Jane. But also, row, row, row your boat? What? The I very the last image of the whole thing is them singing row, row, row your boat. This yeah. whole thing is ridiculous to me because this child looks like she's 9 or 10 and they're treating her like she's 4 or 5. Yeah, completely. I don't know. This The kid always annoys me. Like this whole arc, I, I had to kind of brace myself for rewatching it because while I do think all the dynamics within the camp around it are super interesting, every time it's an, actually a scene with the little girl where they're just like, little one, you're so pretty, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Also, questionable, that babble that she does when she talks to Doc Cochran for the first time. I'm like, is it meant to be some foreign language? Because it's definitely not. Yeah. And it's it's kind of insulting. <laughs> or is she just traumatized? Yeah. If she's traumatized, why is she just, like, smiling blankly all the time? I don't know. It's, it's a weird portrayal of this child. 
I mean, she is kind of like the perfect victim, right? She's blonde, she's cute, she's got huge blue eyes, she look, basically looks like a living doll. And I find it so interesting that this is like the, it, it, it's like the embodiment of like pure innocence that everyone has like gathered themselves around. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing that like comes, comes to a head in this episode is Dan and uh, his relationship as as Al's executioner and sort of his feelings about the stuff that he does. Um, which I feel like we didn't get that in the first episode, really. The second episode definitely um, complicates how he feels about murdering for hire. Mm-hmm. Watching right. him cry as he uh, confronted Doc Cochran, he'd been sent to murder this girl, uh, just really moved me. And I don't know if it's just because I love seeing men cry or not, but, uh, I mean, it was a beautifully acted moment. I really felt for the guy. I was like, he would not choose to murder this girl of his own accord, but he knows that his life hangs in the balance, and he has to stay on Al's good side. Yeah. Dan is low-key one of my favorite characters, and a lot of it is because W. Earl Brown is just such a fantastic character actor. But they, they give him stuff to do. Like, this, I never get bored of all of these henchmen like I usually do in a show like this, because they all have their own thing going on, and they have, like, actual personal reactions to everything that happens. My favorite thing about W. Earl Brown is that he's such a fanboy of the own of his own show. Right. Like he's all over Twitter. He's like, can you believe it? We're coming back. Best time of my life. Can't he had wait. a show like I couldn't go and I was so mad, but here in LA he has like a country band that he had they had like a show to celebrate that they were gonna start filming the movie. <laughs> I love that. that. I was like, oh I really wish I could go see that. Um, but, so yeah, like, they just did a really great job, uh, you know, complicating Dan for us. I feel like they're, they're good at that. They humanize their, Mm -hmm. their bad guys. Also, you mentioned the shock value, uh, of HBO versus all of the sort of, like, primetime programming, and I was reminded of how shocking it was, and there were, like, two instances where I was like, oh, I was like, oh, you're willing to be very grotesque to set yourselves apart as, like, willing to go there. When Tom Mason arrives at the Gem Saloon and is uh, sleeping with, that's, the, that's like the wrong verb to use. He's fucking a whore. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't know, leaves mid-coitus to like show his penis to Al Swearingen um, <laughs> and is like waving it around and you get like a good shot of his behind that's like kind of dirty and yeah. glistening and yeah. I'm like, wow, what was the point of this? Uh, yeah. There wasn't really... Uh, and also, it disturbed me to realize in retrospect that that's Nick Offerman. It is Nick Offerman. <laughs> I cannot believe it was Nick Offerman. Nick, I thought I, I thought it was like that guy looks so familiar, and then I saw his dick, and I was like, oh, it's so. I'm weird. just gonna go. And with, then like, you recognized him. <laughs> that I recognized him from a long past. <laughs> we can just call it a prosthetic penis. I'm sure. I'm sure. It was. I'm sure it was. Yeah. But, um, the second uh, foul moment was Charlie Utter had a conversation. Uh, in the street with Saul and Bullock, and, uh, like, he's peeing at first, and then you get this, like, strangled fart noise, and then he clutches his butt like he's just sharded, yeah. and then they continue the conversation, and I was like, can you believe that just happened? Um, I'm honestly gonna put that one on Seth and Saul, though, because they, like, stop their walk when they see him, and they're like, good evening, and I'm why? like, just keep moving. Yeah, why? You don't need a chit-chat right now. He'll come out <laughs> of tent later. When... Seth and Saul were there at the gambling parlor, and Bill asked Seth to back him, and and Seth told Saul to, like, 
step away from mm-hmm. himself because he was about to pull some shit and he didn't know what the danger level would be, I was like, I'm in love with these two. I think they're <laughs> in love with each other. Like, they're definitely in love with each other. I'm, I know that they probably won't bone, but probably that doesn't mean, I, that doesn't mean <laughs> I don't want it. I feel it's right. They trust each other, and that's part, the first part. It's the healthiest relationship we've seen so far. That's absolutely true. <laughs> this is this actually leads me to like my kind of my issue with the episode, and it, it's it's minor because they were doing amazing things overall, but the women were really not doing a lot. Right. No. The female characters got kind of sidelined. I mean, Calamity is now a babysitter, and Alma is still in her drugged out stupor, and I'm like, okay, let's get this. And Trixie is like not even in it really. Yeah, Trixie's not in this at all. And I was just like, let's get going. Let's give them more to do. Yeah. I was thinking that we could do a few, like, recurring features, one of which is just our favorite quotes, because it's a show that just embraces language in such mm-hmm. a fun way. Um, so, did anybody have, like, a favorite uh, moment, a favorite bit of dialogue? There's a line towards the beginning, which, like, it has it has language that I'm not going to be able to justify, you know. <laughs> I want to hear your impression. <laughs> My impression of the doc, where he says, I see as much misery out of them moving to justify themselves as them that set out to do harm. Like, it doesn't sound good in my voice. But I, like, went back and listened to that line twice because I was like, that is just, like, that just crystallizes the show. And yeah. I, I love a great, like, thematic line like that that just, like, can really capture the whole vibe of what you're doing without feeling like, oh, this is the bad moment in the movie when they say the movie's title kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> it can feel really natural and it can feel like it's delivered from just, like, I've seen some shit. Let me tell you what I've seen. And how old do we think Doc is supposed to be? <laughs> I think he's like 109. Like, he's so old. And I highlighted that exact same line. I was like, this is an incredible piece of dialogue. Uh-huh. And like, I stopped it and I rewound it and I like, had to write it down. Yeah. For and the same reason. Kudos to Brad Dorif for his delivery of everything he does. He's like this, yeah, he's like a hunched golem who's seen everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a cool performance. Um, I, I've discovered that I'm easier to please when it comes to, like, it doesn't have to be thematic or even really, like, very high-minded at all. Just a lot of swear words works for me. Um, <laughs> this is your show, then. <laughs> but I thought that, like, Al had an incredible line in this episode when he was having his uh, showdown with Bullock over the lease of the land uh, to start the hardware store. And their negotiations had kind of blown up. And he was like, and here's my counteroffer to your counteroffer. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> I just want to use that. It's yeah. almost like a housewives line. <laughs> right? I could equally see that happening. Yeah. I wish the housewives were allowed to swear. Yeah, if the housewives had been allowed to say go fuck yourself, the yeah. show would have been it's so much better. <laughs> it would be so, so amazing. Much. How do we get the real housewives on HBO? <laughs> Um, I think I had a line, I'm trying to remember who said this, because I didn't write this down, but maybe one of you can tell me. Uh, I am stupidest when I'm trying to be funny. That was Al, too. That was Al, too, right? Yeah, I mean, he gets so many good lines. And that's just when he's, like, it's his way of, like, backtracking a conversation that isn't going quite the way he wants it to. Right. Mm-hmm. And then resetting it by sort of making himself a clown for just a split second. It's masterful, the way he manipulates people. 
a comedian would like that line. Because <laughs> uh, it's very meta. I think another one of my favorites is when they come away from the negotiation. Saul and Seth are walking down the street, and Seth's like, I don't like that son of a bitch. And Saul just goes, thank God you didn't let him see it. <laughs> I love Saul so much. Saul has some excellent lines in this, hands down. Yeah. <laughs> and he just tolerates Seth's nonsense in such a funny, like, we've been friends for so long, I knew you were going to act like that, like, now let me go clean it up kind of way, like, I just love their relationship. He seems to be the most optimistic character in this universe. Why? I'm not sure. Yeah. But just by his nature, I guess. I guess he's been an outsider his entire life, so he's always trying to figure out, like, the the way that he can find an advantage in having yeah. been, like, a Jewish person Is this in the, the episode Wild where West. he says, I've been called worse by better? Yes, yeah. I love okay. that line. Yes, I've been called worse by better. That That's wasn't great. in my list, but I, it really stands out as yeah. being yeah. like, oh, this is how, yes, a, you know, person who's been beat on their whole life for something completely out of their control might have to look at the world mm-hmm. in that way to just mm-hmm. get through it. Oh, and my my follow-up favorite quote I just think everything that comes out of Jean's mouth is a, is beautiful. When you um, can understand it. When you, <laughs> I did watch this one with the I subtitles, had the subtitles on. on. But, and because she's shit-faced half the time. Yeah. So not mm-hmm. only is it like this Shakespearean Western, you know, dialect, always with so much rage behind it, but like she's slurring. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie had had found her in the street and he said, you're half fucking, oh, she was squinting, I think mm-hmm. is what it was. She couldn't see anything. He said, you're half fucking blind, ain't you? And she said, sometimes it's a fucking blessing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a lot of nastiness going on. There's a lot of fucking ugly dudes that she doesn't have to look at. I feel like she's my I Ching. Is that the... <laughs> Jean's, Jean's take on the world is like, I relate to the most. <laughs> Okay, so we already mentioned that the women are kind of sidelined in this one, so I don't know if we're really going to have any most feminist moments. I do like that at the end, Jane pulls herself together. She and Charlie work together to get the little girl out of camp and out of harm's way, even if just temporarily. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that they end it with her taking an action to stand up to an abuser after having her be a blubbering mess for half the episode. Mm-hmm. But that's pretty much the closest we get to like a, an action taken by a woman in this whole episode. I agree. I actually think that Charlie Utter gets best feminist. Yeah. <laughs> he's so supportive. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. For me, the, like, the least feminist moment was just all of the jokes surrounding the pussy cream. And, like, the treatment of the horrors as sort of, like, belongings that, that are irritations. Mm-hmm. I just was like, this is very dehumanizing. Yeah. Um, I just, I guess I have a question about the pussy cream. Are we, are they, are they just, like, are these women's private parts, like, so overused that they, they're, like, they need to have some sort of ointment? Like, what is it for? I feel like you're not going to get the answers you're seeking. <laughs> <laughs> I just really want to know, like, what the pussy ointment is, like, specifically for. <laughs> I don't know. Doc Rugbird? Yeah. Rugbird? Yeah. Like, all those guys are fucking dirty, too. What's, like, he, what's he doing? He's got all these like herbs hanging in his little doctor's mm-hmm. shack. Like, what's he rubbing up there? <laughs> I don't know if he invented it to come out. He's got like an early version of Lush <laughs> Cosmetics like in his shop. He's an Avon lady. <laughs> Doc Cochran. <laughs> and how does he know like what to treat the pussy with? I just... 
Well, he's seen a lot. He's seen a lot. We do learn. I mean, it's the thing that he kind of gets Dan to, like, Mm -hmm. step back from his mission to kill the little girl by reminding uh, him that if he kills Doc Cochran in his mission to get to the little girl, he's going to have to take care of all those whores on his own again. So, uh, you know, I guess up core upkeep is 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 hard and i think he said specifically either up to your knees or up to your elbows either one was was like i think it was elbows (laughs) it was like a description was like whoa what kind of medical procedures are happening at the whorehouse seriously and they don't they don't even get named usually which is i think why it's my least feminist moment it's like a discussion of their private parts and what what a hassle they are and we still don't know who any of these women really are, mm-hmm. except yeah. for Trixie. And we that doesn't improve very much no. over time either, <laughs> which is sad. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, although we will, in short order, meet a lot of more whores. So. Ooh, <laughs> what a great next time on Ladywood moment to close out on. Thank you for listening to Ladywood the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Ladywoodcast. Uh, and individually, I'm at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at Wee Brandy, O U I B R A N D I. And I'm at Cedar Bear, S E E D. Wait, I'm at Slow Bear. That's my Instagram. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you can follow me on Instagram too. That's S E E D A B E A R. And then on Twitter, I'm Slow Bear, S L O B E A R. And uh, you can find us on Tumblr now at uh, ladywoodcast.tumblr.com. And hopefully by the time you hear this, the episodes are up on Apple, but we'll see. We're at their mercy right now. Yeah, if uh, all of our swearing and talk of pussy cream uh, passes the censors, uh, we hope you'll be able to subscribe and listen to us on iTunes. Free pussy cream. feeling for the knob on the door. You better pick up your feet. You're going to fall on the floor. I keep on telling you, I'll tell you some more. You better leave that junk alone and drink water. Lord, that liquor's hot, drink water, you don't want to be a sot, you better lay down the bottle and put on the top and drink cool H2O. Well, your eyes are baggy and a bloodshot red, it's been a week or two since you've been in bed, you better pay attention now to what I said, you better leave that junk alone and drink water. Lord, that liquor's hot, drink water. You don't want to be a slot, you better lay down the bottle and put on the top and drink cool.